In the winter of 1960, Jean Tangley begins making a machine that will destroy itself. He gathers a large orange weather balloon, dozens of motors, 35 bicycle wheels, an antique radio, an upright piano, and a baby carriage. Tangley had been making mechanized sculptures for decades in France. Meta-mechaniques, they were called, and played random music or drew pictures or moved by themselves. And now, in New York for his first show in America, the whole city looks like a machine to him. Those monster buildings, he says, all that magnificent accumulation of human power and vitality, all that uneasiness, he wants to blow it up in its face. Preferably in the sculpture garden of the Museum of Modern Art. Will there be dynamite, the museum asks. He's not sure. Will there be fire? Perhaps. For two weeks in a New York warehouse, he spends 12 to 16 hours a day putting his machine together. He makes old bicycle parts play piano keys. He creates a machine that makes a painting, then rolls it up. He saws the radio in half and nails it to the piano. And finally, at the last minute, he paints the whole thing white. The better for people to see it and to look like something complete and meant to be. Until it suddenly and explosively is not. Alfred Barr Jr., the museum director, calls it an apocalyptic breakthrough which, it is said, clinks and clanks, tingles and tangles, whirs and buzzes, grinds and creaks, whistles and pops itself in a catabolic Goddardamerung of junk and scrap. Finally, on the night of March 17, Tangley hauls the contraption to the museum. It's been snowing for days, and people stand in the slush and watch as the weather balloon inflates 20 feet in the air, and wheels spin. A fellow artist shows up with pamphlets saying, stop with the profound jokes and the egocentric folk art. One critic watching the spectacle calls it the end of civilization as we know it. And then, almost as soon as the machine begins to move, it begins to fall apart. The baby carriage belches smoke The piano lights on fire. Somewhere in the flaming bowels of the thing, two thick springs are being held by a cord. In addition to the sculpture by Robert Rauschenberg, Bob, as everyone calls him. There were so many different aspects of life involved in the big piece, he will later say. It was as real, as interesting, as complicated, as vulnerable and as gay as life itself. Finally, the cord catches fire, and the springs leap out, showering the crowd with silver dollars, as if to say, take it. Take what's yours. You, like us, have been set free. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support 
from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story of seeing differently, about turning the world on its head and flattening it, the better to put everyone on the same plane. I'm Tim Gary. There's a scene in the first season of Mad Men where Don shows up at the village apartment of his mistress and finds it filled with beatniks. They all get high and listen to jazz, but Don is clearly the odd man out here. Why don't you make something of yourself? He tells a guy wearing a fez. Like you, another guy says. You make the lie, man. You invent want. For them, not us. Don gets up to leave. I hate to break it to you, he says, but there is no big lie. There is no system. The universe is indifferent. You can't leave, someone says. The police are outside. You can't, Don says, and leaves. Don is most of us, right? Whether we wear a suit and fedora or not. There's comfort in conformity, privilege. And he's correct, the universe is indifferent. But life might be very different for all of us right now, if not for guys and fezes who refuse to play by the rules. Everyone at some point seems to hear about the urinal that was hung in a gallery and declared art. What actually happened was more than a hundred years ago now, early spring in New York. Marcel Duchamp and his patron go to a factory and indeed buy a porcelain urinal. And Duchamp signs it, R. Mutt, 1917, on the side. A reference perhaps to the Mutt and Jeff cartoon. It doesn't matter that much, except that Duchamp submits the urinal a couple weeks later under the name of Richard Mutt, to the Society of Independent Artists. He wants them to include it in their show of modern art at New York's Grand Central Palace. He calls it Fountain. The Society has a policy of open admission, and when the artist George Bellows, who's one of the board members, is reminded of this, he supposedly yells, Do you mean that if an artist put horse manure on a canvas and sent it to the exhibition, we would have to accept it? The answer is yes. But the society says no to the urinal anyway. So Duchamp takes it to the gallery of Alfred Stiglitz, who photographs the urinal. And then Duchamp and Man Ray, supposedly, take it to the Grand Central Palace and walk with it among the artworks, crashing the party, as it were. And then, mysteriously, the fountain vanishes. Now, Duchamp makes hundreds more urinals over his career and a few other ready-mades, as he calls them, like a bicycle wheel attached to a stool, right? Found objects taken out of context and chosen for display. Are they art? Duchamp says so. 
Everything in life is art, he says. If I call it art, it is art. In 1958, though, when Duchamp sends 30 miniature fountains from New York to Paris, French customs officers still refuse to recognize them as works of art. He is, by then, one of the most famous living artists. But these guys don't care. Instead, they classify the mini-urinals as, quote, samples. Which is, of course, their choice. Bob Rauschenberg, growing up in Texas in the 1930s, has never heard of Duchamp or his urinals. In fact, he has no idea what an artist is or does. It was easy, he would later say, to grow up in Port Arthur, a Gulf Coast refinery town, without ever seeing a painting. And yet, he has an instinct to turn his world into art. One day he finds a can of red paint and decides to paint all the furniture in the bedroom he shares with his sister with red fleur-de-lis. This doesn't go over well. But Bob is not easily discouraged. He's a happy guy, his sister says. He draws at school. He draws at home. And when he leaves for San Diego in 1942 to join the Navy, he goes to an art gallery the first chance he gets and sees the first paintings in his life. When he gets out of the Navy three years later, he decides to go to Paris to become an artist like so many others before him. Except Rauschenberg, when he begins art school there in 1947, finds the city and the art scene depressing. Everyone is hung up on Matisse and Picasso, who don't do much for Rauschenberg. He's not interested in making art say anything or do anything nor is he interested in self-expression. I think art should be a lot more interesting than my personality, he says. And one day, wondering what to do, he sees a story in Time magazine about an art program in North Carolina that believes, like Duchamp, that life is art, and art is life. Within a few months, Rauschenberg is there, at Black Mountain College. So is his girlfriend, Sue Weil, soon to become his wife. John Cage is teaching music. Merce Cunningham is teaching dance. And Joseph Albers is teaching art. Albers, of course, had taught in Germany at the Bauhaus. A beautiful teacher and an impossible person, Rauschenberg says. It doesn't help that Rauschenberg is among his worst students. Still, Black Mountain is full of people, Weil says, with, quote, eyes wide, trying to understand everything about possibilities. Rauschenberg is one of them, learning by keeping his eyes open. It helps, in a way, that almost no one has money, including the college. Everyone has to work to make the school work. And Rauschenberg and Weil are the garbage collectors. Soon enough, they're scavenging, taking things from the trash they can use in art. 
at night in the dining hall. Rosenberg talks to poets and scientists and composers. All of them focused less on how to do their discipline than how to do life, the creative life. And Rauschenberg seems to learn this lesson better than almost anyone. Let's back up a bit to the end of World War II. The center of the art world has shifted during the war, right? From Paris to New York. Because Paris is a mess of Nazis, and because so many European artists have fled to New York, and, well, it's New York, the greatest city and greatest country in the world, something like that. In 1949, after just a year in North Carolina, Rauschenberg, too, moves to New York and falls in with the abstract expressionists, the very center of the center of the art world expressing themselves abstractly in violent slashes of color and grime about a world that has nearly destroyed itself twice in 30 years. Rauschenberg is like, eh, that doesn't look like fun. But he is a charmer, and he gets to know these guys at the Artist Club and the Cedar Tavern, Franz Klein and Willem de Kooning and the rest. And they draw him in, warily, like kings welcome a jester. Rauschenberg starts making his own abstract paintings, only without the expression. All black or all white. He returns to Black Mountain several times over the next few years as a kind of unofficial artist in residence. And there his art makes perfect sense. One night in the summer of 1952, John Cage hosts a performance in the dining hall. Two people are reading poetry while someone plays the piano. Cage lectures on mystical Catholicism and Zen Buddhism. Merce Cunningham dances through the audience, a dog chasing him. Rauschenberg hangs four of his huge white paintings from the rafters in the form of a cross and projects slides on them while playing Edith Piaf records. And the rest of the time, they just hang, letting shadows pass over them, as though the art is happening to the painting. Cage calls it theater piece number one, though it becomes known as the event, random, improvised, and by all accounts, the first happening. Later that summer, in 1952, Cage drives up to the Maverick Music Hall at the end of a dirt road in Woodstock, New York. It's warm and rainy. The moss on the roof of the theater is gleaming green. The audience is filled with local musicians and composers and vacationing players from the New York Philharmonic, checking out the leading edge of the avant-garde. Cage offers two premieres. The first involves a pianist, a duck call, and a transistor radio. For the second, the pianist sits down, closes the lid of the keyboard, and starts a stopwatch, 
and then, famously, does nothing for 30 seconds. Lifts the lid, closes the lid, stops and starts the stopwatch. Two more times he does this. Four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Of course, it's not silent. There's rain on the roof, crickets outside, people shifting uncomfortably in their seats. It is the musical equivalent of Rauschenberg's white paintings, which inspired the piece, in which Cage describes as airports for lights, shadows, and dust. Everything we do is music, he says. Everything is art. After the performance at the Maverick Music Hall, an artist stands up and declares, Good people of Woodstock, let's drive these people out of town. Artists aren't sure what to think of Bob Rauschenberg either. Is he making fun of them or has he moved beyond them? Either way is threatening. A critic for the New York Times calls his paintings stylish doodles in black and white. Rauschenberg, it seems, is okay with this. If the abstract expression is value suffering to save the world, well, he values pleasure and saves nothing, not even his own work. Once he goes to Cage's apartment and sees one of his early paintings there and decides on the spot to paint over it in black, thinking Cage would like it better, which he probably does, actually, or at least the idea. There's a story about Rauschenberg in the fall of 1952, when he goes off to Rome with the artist Cy Twombly. His marriage is falling apart. He has only enough money to get to Europe, not to come back. And at some point, he decides to go to North Africa, alone. In the desert, he begins to combine things he finds. Rope, bones, boxes, painted sticks, into these little ramshackle sculptures. When he gets back to Italy, he tries to sell them. And he does. To galleries in Rome and Florence. Even though one critic calls them a psychological mess and suggests he throw them in a river. Now, when Rauschenberg is packing to leave, having earned enough to go home, he finds he doesn't have room to take everything. So he gathers most of the artworks, finds a quiet spot on the Arno River in Florence, and throws them in. Art, he decides, is a game. And when he gets back to New York, it's game on. He decides to erase an artwork, but he finds it unsatisfying to erase one of his own drawings because, objectively, he can't decide if it's art. So, he brings a bottle of whiskey over to Wilm de Kooning's studio and asks if he can erase one of his. Kooning isn't sure whether to be flattered or annoyed. 
But finally he says, okay, but I'm not going to make it easy and pulls out a complicated drawing with a lot of hard lines. Rauschenberg spends a month trying to erase it and only kind of sort of succeeds. You can still see the faint outlines. But when he's done, it's done. Game over. And he's on to the next game and the next one. That same year, in 1953, he tapes some big sheets of paper together. So they form a 23-foot-long scroll. And he asks John Cage to drive over it, having covered one of the tires of Cage's Ford Model A with black paint. And Cage does, suggesting it looks like a Tibetan prayer scroll. Eventually, critics come to think of Rauschenberg as a trickster, a confidence man, always with something up his sleeve. Rauschenberg's career as the fool's errand of 20th century art, wrote a critic recently in the New York Review of Books. For a great artist, wrote the late art critic of The New Yorker, he made remarkably little good art. But Rauschenberg never thinks of it that way. Good, bad, ugly... To him, it's the idea, literally, that matters. And somehow, for a long stretch of the 1950s and 60s, he never seems to run out of ideas. Now, Rauschenberg is still poor in the mid-1950s, living with Jasper Johns and abandoned buildings, every morning hiding the platform where their mattress sits with a drop cloth and an easel because no one is supposed to live there. Rauschenberg is making his combine paintings now, combining these things he's foraged from the city, bits of newspaper and fabric, scraps of wood, and painting over and around them. They look like, well, trash. But Rauschenberg insists they simply reflect the world he lives in, a world he's always been happy in, just as it is. I really feel sorry for people who think things like soap dishes or mirrors or Coke bottles are ugly, he says, because they're surrounded by things like that all day long, and it must make them miserable. In 1958, both Rauschenberg and Johns get shows at the Leo Castelli Gallery. Suddenly, they're the It Boys of pop. The scene is still small, there's still a loft party every Saturday night, and everyone who's anyone in pop can squeeze in. Maybe at Klaus Oldenburg's place. And you walk in, and his wife Patty is sewing up one of his soft sculptures. And someone starts playing music, and someone starts dancing. Wherever there's a happening, well, happening, Rauschenberg is there. He's making costumes and sets for Merce Cunningham. He's working with Cage. He's working with a theater where someone might come on stage, eat a pear, and leave. He's adding his silver dollars to the machine that destroys itself. And then, in the summer of 1964, he goes to Venice for the Biennale.
Rauschenberg decides to show most of his work at the U.S. consulate in Venice, and places only one in the U.S. pavilion in the Biennale itself, which means he doesn't qualify to win the grand prize. But once he's there, a buzz begins to build. Many in Europe have been slow to accept that the center of the art world has shifted across the Atlantic, especially in France, which usually cleans up at the Biennale. And now, here's this American, a Texan, in jeans and sneakers, who dropped out of art school in Paris, who has this insouciant energy, like the Kennedys or the admin on Madison Avenue or the astronaut shooting for the moon, who only bothered to enter one picture in the show. People can't get enough of him. And so, rather quickly, the U.S. team persuades him to bring over the rest of his paintings. A few years earlier, Andy Warhol had shown Rauschenberg how to silkscreen pictures into his work. And he loved it. No more hunting for trash in the streets. He could incorporate images that spoke to him right in his studio. And now, he's hauling these huge, colorful canvases across the canals of Venice. There are photos of men loading them into these classic wooden motorboats. There are images of Kennedy and astronauts hanging over to the sides like stowaways. Rauschenberg, of course, wins the big prize, the Golden Lion, the first American to do so, and, at 39, the youngest artist ever. The big winner, of course, is the U.S. itself, right? The art world had been the last frontier, really, for America to dominate. And now, with the rise of Rauschenberg and pop art, the center of gravity has shifted entirely. Rauschenberg can now do just about anything he wants, right? Critics are calling him the most important artist of his time. He had said things like, painting relates to both art and life. Neither can be made, back in 1959. But now people act like they know what he's talking about. What Rauschenberg really wants to do, more than anything, though, is dance. Merce Cunningham is taking his troupe and assorted collaborators on a world tour. John Cage is along for the ride, and Rauschenberg decides to come, too. A loyal supporter of the man some are calling the greatest choreographer of his time. But after winning the biennial, things have changed. Reporters are asking Rauschenberg about the tour, and some people, including Cunningham and Cage, seem to think he's making it all about him. When the tour stops in Stockholm, Rauschenberg dances on roller skates with Carolyn Brown, one of Cunningham's best dancers, with capes made of parachute material flying behind them. The press eats it up, while Cage and Cunningham fume And when the tour runs out of money in Asia, Rauschenberg quickly makes a few artworks and sells them so the show can go on. And this, you know, 
gets under people's skin too. At the end of the tour, Rauschenberg falls out with Cage and Cunningham. The whole New York scene is changing anyway. 1964, some artists say, is when the pop art party starts to end. Rauschenberg calls up his astrologer and asks, What's going on? My circle is breaking up. My friends are getting divorced. Everything's falling apart. And he gets back this cryptic reply. You need to live near water. So, he gets in his Jaguar, starts driving south through Manhattan, takes every exit to the left to stay near the water until he gets all the way down to Florida. As soon as he sees this house on the island of Captiva, he starts calling realtors and buys it on the spot. And then he calls his staff in New York and lays them off. There are no chairs in the house. Everything is white. Floors, walls, ceilings, a few pillows here and there. Here he can work and swim and sleep to midday. For so long he had pushed against the art world. Now he is the art world. Like the dog that caught the car. Now what? Eventually he starts buying the neighbor's houses too and turns one into a print studio with presses. And this, for the most part, becomes his art. Not much washes up on the beach here, he says. So he tears pages out of magazines and Sears catalogs and seed catalogs and transfers the images onto paper. In 1970, the Minneapolis Institute of Art holds a major retrospective of his prints including some he'd already shown that year in Minneapolis at Gallery 12, on the 12th floor of the Dayton's department store. So you could come buy some sheets and towels and clothes and also some art. It's becoming harder by 1970 to surprise anyone anymore. Already in 1951, when Duchamp was commissioned to make a new fountain for a gallery show in New York, a fellow artist lamented that no trace of the initial shock remained. The urinal was placed over the door of the gallery and filled with geraniums. Duchamp had once declared that everything is art, right? But once his own work is seen as art, he seems disappointed. If everything is art, well, then nothing is art. By 1972, when the critic Harold Rosenberg writes, nothing is left of art but the fiction of the artist, art in many ways seems played out. Even the artwork, Rosenberg writes, has become anxious. It does not know whether it is a masterpiece or junk. Let's go back one more time to Black Mountain College in the early 1950s, when Rauschenberg is working with dancers and composers and scientists. It's a warm, sunny day, and Rauschenberg is outside on the lawn of the college, performing in a dance. Back in New York, he's living on 15 cents a day, foraging for bits of tin and wire to put in his work. 
trying to pull the next trick out of his sleeve. But here, he's relaxed, wearing tights and no shirt. There's a whole world of art out there to rebel against, to break, to erase. Starting now, with this dance, even if no one's watching, he is completely in the moment, completely free. And he leans back so his chest faces the sun and thrusts one arm toward the sky. Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and made possible with support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gearing. New episodes come out every month. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you cast your pods. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening. Hey, Mr. Play that thing for me.